Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. All right, welcome to the next edition of the Y87 podcast. With me is our classmate, Tom McNulty. Hey, Tom. Hey there, great to see you. Nice to see you. So where are you and what are you up to these days? Sure, I'm in Houston. And those of you who know, I was, I was in JE, I was from the New York area, I went to high school in New Jersey, so that may surprise some classmates who didn't know, but I, I got here more than a quarter of a century ago after business school, so in the summer of 96, never thought I'd wind up being in Texas, and that it's a story about energy, really, uh, and didn't start in the business world. You know, I studied history in Russia, and I was looking into a, a government career took a bunch of the exams, interviews, and wound up in the in the Foreign Service. I was commissioned in the Foreign Service, wound up in Southeast Asia, former Soviet Union. But I had one assignment in Washington and uh, had a boss, a, a senior career officer. Uh, it was an energy security policy department. It's not called that anymore, who handed me a book actually by an alum, Daniel Juergen, Dr. Juergen, a book called The Prize, recommended to everybody. He won the Pulitzer Prize for the books about basically the story of oil. I couldn't put it down. I was bitten by the energy bug because energy is obviously a business. It's also very geopolitical. It's very strategic. And of course, now we have the climate debate, which wasn't that prevalent back then. So I left the, when I left the Foreign Service, I got my MBA. I did that at, at Kellogg and came to Houston the summer of 96, and I've never left took getting some getting used to as someone from the New York area. Uh, I did not like it initially. What, uh, where are you in Texas? Yeah, it's Houston. It's Houston. So big city, probably the energy capital of the world. We like to call it biggest city in the state. It's probably the fourth biggest city in the country or tied with Chicago. But it's different. If you're not a Texan and you're not from here, it was a, quite an adjustment. Like what are the things you had to adjust to? Well, certainly the climate. I moved here. I moved from Chicago in August. I remember moving into my apartment. It was 105 degrees. It's very, very hot and humid. Uh, everyone knows that. The winters tend to be mild. It's also, Houston is a commercial city. It was never, it's not beautiful. It has no mountains, oceans. It was just built. It grew as a business city after the famous Galveston hurricane and Galveston became secondary. Houston grew pretty rapidly in the early 1900s. So driving was a thing for me too. I had never, and it really had to drive everywhere, you know, even just to get something to eat. It's, it's a very heavy driving city, almost a miniature Los Angeles in that respect. But it grew on me. A lot of people are here from other places. A lot of the big energy companies bring people in and I was in kind of an associate training program and with a lot of people from other states and other places. And we all sort of commiserated. And then many of us wound up staying. But it's very nice. The culture of people are very nice. It's, you know, the Texas culture, very friendly for a big city. And so I kind of adjusted quickly. 
So when you started in energy, like what, what does someone who works in energy do? Because that's a pretty broad topic. My experience was in a very famous place, so it was very eye-opening. I was brought to Houston by Enron. Enron hired Enron was run by a couple of people uh, from Harvard Business who replicated the notion of the associate class, the analyst class, where you, the analysts are from college, associates from MBA schools, and they went to the top 15, and they created classes. Uh, Jeff Skilling was a McKinsey guy, um, Rebecca Mark, I'm not sure where, but the idea of creating these classes, you come in and train, rotate. And so it was drinking from a fire hose. It was basically the complexity, the financial complexity around energy markets and commodity markets, valuations and transactions and trading. So you as an associate are basically similar to an associate in an investment bank and perhaps a law firm, the engine room, kind of grinding out the analytical work. It was very transactional experience. It was a lot of M&A, and that's where, you know, kind of my career started, building out markets, buying assets, selling assets. And then, so when you when you talk about energy, what was emphasized was pe- people tend to think of energy as, you know, your oil and gas or your power or renewables, right? And what we were taught and what you see in Houston, which needs to be more widely, I think, disseminated, is energy is one large, giant complex, and they're different forms right? There's oil, there's gas, there's liquids, there's power. It's technical. That's the other thing they taught us. There were a lot of engineers. It's a very technical, physical, complicated business. And so it can be oversimplified at some risk, which gets into some of the energy transition and climate issues now where, you you know, you, we were taught you can't, I mean, you can't violate the laws of thermodynamics or physics, right? I mean, you can't just make stuff up. It's very, very technical and physical. I work with a lot of engineers. I'm not an engineer. Spent a lot of time getting up the curve on petrochemicals and how power grids work. That's what's cool about it. It's really, really technical. So and, can I just stop you there? Yeah. yeah. And I want to go talk a little bit of the technical stuff. And not that I'm an engineer, because I am not either, but I used to work in our town government, had a little background in the just the infrastructure, thinking about how many transformers we needed to service a particular part of town, that kind of thing. Is that what you're talking about? You're talking about technical, like how many you know watts do you need to get electricity into a home? Exactly. We learned in our power classes, and then I spent a lot of time at Duke Energy for eight years, although in Houston, one of the large utilities based in Charlotte, Carolina, but the unregulated businesses were here. They teach about Kirchhoff's law and, you know, 60 hertz. I mean, the, the disaster that happened in Texas last February, almost we're coming up on the one year anniversary, where you maintain frequency in a grid at 60 hertz or whatever it has to be. And what happens if it goes below that and how catastrophic that can be? So it's very yes, I am. T- I mean, transformers and, you know, what's base load? Can you energize Europe right now with just wind and solar. It's not physically possible. doesn't mean it won't happen. So there are physical realities that you learn. And then, so as a finance person, we were working with deeply analytical models and financial models and valuation transaction models that were had to be predicated on something technical. Upstream engineers will give you reports about gas and oil production and pressure and different things that you use in your models and power models. It's about megawatt hours and what's the cost of the fuel? Is it gas, coal, nuclear, wind, solar? And so 
well, that, that, not that there's fuel there, but the point is it, it's a it's a blending of the technical and the financial. So we were trained as finance deal people, but told to respect from day one the technical part. And I've always loved that. And I've always continued to learn that. It's it, even taking courses in geology. I mean, it's it's neat stuff. So when you're working your, your town, when you were working in your town, you know, the transformers and they were thinking of, you know, what happens in a storm? You know, how does the physical nature of electric power work? And it's actually, um, it's pretty complicated. So what are the technical challenges that people face today, that our country faces today, that you think most people either oversimplify, get wrong, or just don't know are there? I think we need to be a little careful. Well, there's a lot of politics around the climate debate, and I'm res- respectful of that. I mean, the, 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 the climate situation is is very significant but what we have to be careful when whether it's brussels london paris or washington if there's public policy that literally can't like it physically can't be done if there's an approach to saying well we're going to have no no fossil fuels by friday at noon and you just literally can't do that, right? So, the, so what we see a lot of from Houston is are things where the transition isn't respected in terms of how do we get to where maybe we can be energized by wind, solar, geothermal. Hydro is also a renewable fuel, a renewable energy source, more sustainable fuel sources, a huge switch to electric vehicles. All of that stuff, I'm convinced, is happening and will happen. But it comes down to the velocity. That's what we talk about here in Houston a lot is the pace and the velocity. When you have these very aggressive timelines, it scares people because look at Europe. The Germans took their nukes offline very fast, decommissioned their nuclear power. Europe will largely heat itself and energize itself this winter with coal and bunker fuel oil, which is very damaging to the environment. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? You can have a mandate that says all the nuclear plants have to be closed. And then you close them. But then, you know, is it too fast? I mean, you have to get the other stuff working fast so you can take the bad stuff off. Asia's building 300, 300 coal-fired power plants across Asia, India, China, Vietnam. Japan's building 22. And they're going to build coal-fired power stations because of concerns about nuclear and natural gas. Natural gas is a fossil fuel, uh, but it's very, it's much, much cleaner. And so... Yeah, the technical debates here are how do you do this properly, right? Rather than it must be tomorrow or in five years. And it becomes very political, which can be frustrating. There's also substantial geopolitical issues. Sometimes I'll throw my old Foreign Service hat on because that's where I was trained and I first became aware of energy in government, sort of backwards and coming into the private sector. It's very difficult for Western Europe and North America to tell the developing world what to do. Why is that? Well, because the Indi- the subcontinent doesn't want the British telling them what to do. Indonesia doesn't want the Dutch telling them what to do. The Philippines, where I was stationed, that was an American colony. They don't want us telling them what to do. The Vietnamese don't want the French telling them what to do. So there's a colonial overhang of the former... And, and I think the United States is a lot less guilty of it. We didn't have this giant empire that was half the planet. But I mean, the point is, it's very hard to be British or French or American and go to the developing world and say, you can't do this. Because what they're doing, and particularly in China and India, is saying, we need to develop. And I was in the Philippines with a lot of energy crisis, a very poor country. Basically say to them, you can't have power because it's coal. 
because it's ruining the planet. Their answer is, you know what? We're going to build coal-fired power plants because you guys did it. It's very, very geopolitical, very nuanced and very challenging. And so depending on what you see coming out of COP26 in Europe, you know, you can have these pronouncements. And a lot of the folks in the Houston market really understand energy. And a lot of us did international development. I spent a lot of time in Asia working on uh, project development and a little bit in South America and Africa. It can be done, but how, you know, how is, you know, can it be done where it's logical and the physics are not ignored and then you're respectful of the politics? Because again, you've got 300 coal-fired power plants under construction throughout Asia, and those are very damaging to the climate debate, the, the 1.5 degrees centigrade. They're, gonna, they're going to be built, and they will not stop building them. And a lot of energy people say, well, the solutions are from the energy industry. You know, we know the industry. We're not the bad guys per se. Big oil is, is generally the bad guy. Total spending, as a French company, spending billions on the energy transition. A lot of the money can come from energy companies because they have a lot of money. And they can make money on the old energy slowly running down and feeding the cash flows into the new energy. But there's a lot of cynicism because they're not trusted. They've been bad actors. They've done bad things. And so do you trust what Exxon says or BP or Chevron? And I have friends in all these companies that are working on these challenges and they have the skill. I mean, there are more chemical engineers in the Houston, greater Houston market than in the rest of the country combined. Most people don't know that. I mean, it's a massive downstream complex here. And so if there's a little bit of let's listen to the energy complex rather than vilify it, a lot of the solutions may come from it because it's so technical. You can't just learn it in Chicago or Silicon Valley in a couple of months. I mean, the, the learning curve is very flat here. So people can say that won't work, but this will work. And this is clean or cleaner, or maybe it'll help get us there. And so that's the part that's fascinating, that the, there can be big mistakes made on the public policy side. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. Interesting. Now, you've used the word debate a couple of times, and I think you defined it a minute ago, but just so I'm, I'm clear, do you hear in Houston people debating whether or not there's climate change? Or when you say debate, is it just a matter of how to make energy cleaner? It's in velocity. The outright, what might be called climate deniers, just complete denial, is you'd be surprised that it's fairly small. Thinking of Texas, our image is, again, I'm a Yankee who's now here. The image of Texas is a bunch of oil people. You would assume it's it's strident and widespread. It's it's actually fairly small. Where you get into the weeds is, is about velocity, right? So is it, okay, do we have 30 years, 40 years, 50 years? In other words, it's, it's very nuanced into the models. And how much time do we have to get rid of all the coal and use gas instead? Or can we make a nuclear argument? So, it, you know, when I say debate, yeah, I'm glad you asked that. It's more, it, I use the word velocity, right? How does, what shape does it take and what is the velocity? Because if you go too fast, you can hurt people. Again, Europe's a good example. They're going to have, they have a lot of energy problems in Europe because some things might've been done a little too fast. We could perhaps look at California, debate California a little bit. 
you know, in terms of that's about velocity, but in terms of outright, if I think of people I know being here 25 years, people who are just outright denial of it, it's a small number. It's a very small so, number. The other thing you touched on, I find, you know, fascinating because I think that this colonial mindset that at least when you're trying to give a, a technical message, because at the end of the day, thinking about what might happen to the planet 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now is technical. And particularly if you're going to talk 100 years ago, we're not going to be here to see it. Right. So it's very abstract. And then you have the West telling developing countries what to do. And I think that mirrors the perception of some people saying, okay, I've got these educated folks telling me what to do. I don't want to listen to this because it sounds like you're condescending. So how do you communicate about these ideas in a way that opens people's mind and get the real dialogue that you were talking about? How do you do that? I think it's, I mean, there's certainly a government level, energy so big and so geopolitical that there's a large government piece. Again, that's how I wound up becoming aware of it myself when I was I don't know, 25, I guess. But, uh, you know, leadership will help intelligent discussions in the, you know, in the, in the diplomatic core around the world and different organizations, European energy charter group is one of them. But I think, and there are a lot of bilateral discussions and I think it, I think it's going to be an industry government partnership where the, you know, there are industry players that can say, if we know we can get natural gas to the Phil, well, I'm, this is a real person. I'm thinking of someone in the Philippines who wants to develop gas fired power plants if we can get natural gas to the Philippines, they won't use coal. They'll use natural gas again. It's a fossil fuel, but it's a big, big difference on methane and CO2. It's measurable. If you take the 300 coal-fired plants going up in Asia and just flip the switch and they became gas, you'd see, I mean, there'd be measurable CO impacts. It may not fix the climate issue, but it would be measurable. So I think it's got to be industry and government. And so when I think of people I know in the developing world, if they're and some of these folks now getting to a point where they're they were former colleagues, but maybe they're going to run for Senate in the Philippines, or maybe they're they're becoming more senior in their countries when we were all young together, but now they're you know important in their countries, they will listen to the argument that you know we could use cleaner fuels and more renewables if they think it will work. So that, that's where the energy industry piece has to come in to say, no, you could, you're not going to make a promise in Vietnam and then look like an idiot when it can't happen. And you should have built the, they're building 40, roughly 40 coal fired plants throughout Vietnam, as far as I last checked. And so they'll listen and do it. If you can show the technical ability in the markets, can you get the gas there? Can you build the solar and wind out? But then that, that reaches a point where it can't really run the whole country yet without the battery piece. So you've got the wind and the solar, but can you run maybe gas instead of coal for baseload? I think they will listen. I think the dialogue is government level and industry level, um, kind of a partnership. And, um, and Africa is another one. I mean, the nuclear debate is really interesting. There's so many new technologies in nuclear. I was exposed to that at Duke Energy. Our plants are all from the 70s. Some of the new modular designs that are coming out of France, even in the United States, they're incredible technologies. And nobody wants to do them because nuclear is bad. And then when you ask them, why is nuclear bad? Then they say, uh, well, Chernobyl, okay, or Fukushima. Well, what, makes okay. Them what makes them incredible? Like what? what they're very you small. You seem very excited about it. Take, because you, you think of the 70s to now. What's changed? 
I mean, it's 50, almost 50 years. So material science, miniaturization, the use of AI, they're smaller. I mean, you, the technologies, materials around the designs are smaller. Some of them are not using water. The water cool design, there's some other concepts to keep them safer using salt water or other chemicals. Um, there's just been a lot of innovation in the nuclear space, particularly because France is largely nuclear powered, 80%. And so people are designing better reactors. So if you think about, you know, the last reactor was 1978. Is the 2020 reactor any better? How could it not be? Of course it's better. And so everything about it's better. I mean, the, incrementally better anyway. And so safety is a concern. And then what happens to the spent fuel? I'm respectful of all of that, but it's zero emissions. So people talk about emissions, especially CO2 and methane, which really has been proved. I mean, that's what goes up into the sky and, and causes you know the problems, right? The substantial heating problems, the climate problems. These things don't emit any of that at all. It's zero emissions. So that it, that has to be looked at. Europe is even starting to come around. The EU has has, has proposed an announce a, a pronouncement that they want nuclear and gas to be labeled clean. It's not renewable, not zero carbon, but clean energy. And they're getting a lot of pushback. But there are some politicians in Europe starting to say we need to have a middle ground because if we do this too fast, we're going to have our lights turning off. You have to do it carefully is what I'm saying. And what I've learned being here 25 years and when you talk to the engineers, I mean, that whether, whatever their politics are in climate, it's, they'll, they'll, they're talking about physics and thermodynamics and things that you, can, you can't just pass a law that violates the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, so there are things that just cannot, you know, phys, you can't move power from New York to, to Texas. I mean, it just can't be done, and uh, which would be called wheeling. And so... There's, um, there's just a physical reality that it's kind of fun to learn and, and it can be done. I mean, there's a lot that can be done. A lot, a lot of people here are pretty optimistic, but that's largely because they're, they understand the technical nature and it's like, well, we can fix this. If, if you're, if you're worried about CO2 and methane and that's a problem. What's giving them the optimism? Where, where's it coming from? What, how would they fix it? Like, what are the things you're seeing? A lot of it is, is a combination of commercial, entrepreneurial, venture capital type thinking and business thinking where I can think of guys I know right now that are doing a carbon capture and storage project. And they come from oil backgrounds, right? So, but they're just saying, well, I mean, I'll pivot to businesses that help solve this. So a lot of it is commercial. A lot of it is is economic that people want to develop businesses or if you're like at oxy low carbon ventures or chevron has committed 10 billion to the energy transition it's basically there's a business piece right and so there's also because it's texas and tends to be a little bit more i don't know if libertarian is the right word there's this notion that if we figure it out it won't be forced by government, which could maybe force it to be done wrong or too fast, right? So there's this, you'll hear people in panels and, you know, these conferences that pop up here all the time where they're saying, we can figure this out, let's do this and solve it within the energy complex, because if it's dictated from outside, it may be done wrong. So there's a lot of that as well. So are you fundamentally optimistic that we'll be able to change the way we use energy as a society so that it'll be cleaner? and 
yeah fast enough pretty much yeah i mean i the, it's not going to be easy or smooth but just just seeing the people particularly just being here the people who are working on evs charging you know what's going on in batteries uh, there's a lot a lot being done in geothermal just the effort the money the intelligence the talent the focus that's coming out of the energy complex broadly defined you know you could have 10 ideas and there's three of them work or two of them work they, they're game changers the carbon capture sequestration storage there's going to be a lot more of that just incremental things at the wellhead. I mean, a lot of these companies are kind of like, all right, fine. I mean, I don't want to have methane leaking out of my wells. It's bad for the climate, but it's also dumb, so I'll fix it. I mean, there's there's been a lot of work on pipelines, uh, pipeline integrity that may, probably should have been done sooner. But now they're saying, yeah, all right, fine, I get it. We'll be part of the solution, not part of the problem. So I'm optimistic because I'm here every day and the resistance is actually pretty small. Some of the companies, I mean, Exxon's famous for being intransigent. They've started to come around. But if, if you have friends inside of these groups that like Oxy or Chevron or, you know, even Duke or uh, Kinder Morgan's doing a lot of work on carbon capture, transportation, they don't wake up and say, I'm in a fake job just to make someone happy. They actually believe in what they're doing. And, and since they have the skill and they understand how stuff comes out of the ground, goes into the air, can go back into the ground. I mean, that technical piece, they're the ones that can probably figure it out. So I would say cautiously optimistic. But, but yeah, I think that, I think that um, especially if you, have, if you can somehow get that classic private sector, public sector kind of cooperation, we're often good at that in this country, maybe not always. In a lot of other countries, it's more, you know, government only. But... I'd say yes. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think the technology, I think people have fi can, will figure it out in such a way that if we can get it done rationally, we can get the velocity side of it and say, okay, if we're running out of time, let's not panic and do things that are really dangerous now and just get it done and accelerate the work around you know, lower carbon sustainability, all the stuff you hear around that, and even ESG in the energy complex. That can be done, and most of the people I know agree with me. I mean, not everyone, but it's, I'd say the majority in this market are on board, and they kind of say, all right, this is the situation. They're technical problem solvers, so you hand them a problem and say, okay, the Earth's heating too fast. This, this list out all the issues. What would you do? And they kind of go to their whiteboard, and then they're, they're trying to figure it out. Interesting. So we got to the point of our uh, podcast I call the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you some some rapid-fire questions. So what food do you have in Texas that we should have had in New Haven when we were back in college? Probably the Tex-Mex. The Tex-Mex. All right. All right. So, you know, I've asked this question of a number of people. So now you have, uh, you know, you've got the classic Sally's Peppies debate. Now you've got one place in town in, in New Haven that serves mashed potatoes on their pizza. Mashed potatoes on a pizza. Is that a culinary masterpiece or is that an abomination to a sacred food? I think it should be five to 10 in a federal penitentiary. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, um, 
So when you think back at your Yale experience and you're thinking about the things that are most important out of your experience, do you think about your time with your teammates, your time with the people in the dining hall, a particular class? What are the things that really stand out of the things that have stayed with you in the last 35 years? It's the people. So it's, it's not, I mean, it can be, if, if you play the sport, it could be the teammates, but also the room, the, just the, the, the people, the classmates. And that's what makes our school special and, and, and really the kind of the peer schools is you can get, you can, you can find 10,000 very smart people and put them in a school. It's that mixture. So I, you know, the, I, I don't remember a lot of the classes or some of the professors are famous in, in the history department. I remember some of those, some of the activities, but no, definitely the people, whether on a team or not, just that, just that, that environment, which is so tragic when you take a, when you go virtual, not having the dining halls or the, you know, the, the courtyards and the colleges, I mean, that hopefully they can get back to the, if, you know, that as soon as they can, because that, that's really what makes the place special is all the people. So when you think about the next 15 years, you know, we're, we're about to have our 35th reunion when we're getting ready for our 50th reunion, what do you want to be able to say at that 50th reunion that you got done? I'd like to, I'm very I'd really very much like to be part of this so-called energy transition process in some small way. I mean, I can't make it happen on my own, but just being kind of in Houston, I think I'm in the right place at the right time with enough, with the 25 years behind me that it can be in a, it's probably in a business, you know, consulting finance type role. I'd probably like to, yeah, I'd like to do more probably media podcast type, maybe even writing because, you know, I think, we need to get the word out. So to probably have some accomplishments around the energy transition, be able to say we've had an impact that's positive, but it, you know, it, it worked because of smart thinking and technology and not, not, not just purely by mandate, but there'll be a little bit of that. So hopefully something good to say about the energy transition, which I know is hard to define, but what it means to all of us. And uh, last question, if there was something that you thought classmates should read to understand this energy transition, the technical part, the what's possible part, the velocity thing, what should people be reading, listening to, watching? Oh, you know, that's tough because it's too many different things. I'll have to, I'll have to come up with a good reading list I can share and we could post it because I, I always make people start with the prize. In fact, I talked to a young, a sophomore last fall and said, read the prize by Daniel Jurgen because just start to set that the, the broad geopolitical context of oil. But for the, for the transition itself, it's, it's a lot of its white, pa- a lot of its papers and academic stuff. Books are starting to come out. There tend to be the climate books or books like unsettled or apocalypse, never the anti-climate books. I can't think of a perfect text yet for tr- the energy transition, which kind of, I'm toying with the idea of, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I need to do that. So I don't have a perfect bullet for that at the top of my head. All right. Fair enough. Well, I very much look forward to uh, getting together in the Pearson Courtyard, which where we'll be in June, and uh, continuing the conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022. We will be gathering in Pearson College, 
be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. One Yale college class dared to break the mold. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask. What do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.